My attention has been arrested by the first three words of John 18, verse 12. We'll read the first 14 verses in a second, but it simply says they bound him. And I found myself allowing my imagination to be taken up by that expression. Of course, it's talking about the soldiers and the Lord Jesus. And here is the Lord of glory, the one who spoke everything into existence. And it says they bound him. I think, and I'm open to correction, please, if, if I haven't got this quite right, but I think this is the first act of physical, physical humiliation that Jesus knew at the hands of men. I, I know that from the gospel accounts, and we'll, we'll visit a couple of them in our session tonight, that there were attempts to attack the Lord Jesus physically, and it failed. And if that's correct, that this is the first time that the Lord Jesus Christ was subject to the physical brutality of wicked men, I see it as a monumental pivot point in his whole life. And it's a monumental pivot point in God's salvation plan and the history of the universe. Such a significant point that the creator of the universe gave himself for the first time into the hands of men and let them have their own way. You know, within a matter of, I, I'm guessing, but I think it's probably 90 minutes, we transition from the quiet intimacy of the upper room that the Lord Jesus enjoyed and we've enjoyed listening in on with his disciples. It's about 90 minutes from them leaving the upper room to him standing bound and from, a, from his disciples' point of view alone. And I'm left arrested with how did we get from the upper room to this situation? And that's really the business of John 18 and the first um, 14 verses. Just a little reminder of the context. It's, e it's easy, I think, because we've been so immersed in, in the detail and the dialogue of the upper room. Let's remind ourselves that this, as we said right from the beginning, is John assembling a case for Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God and making the point that anyone who believes will um, have life in his name. That's our key verse from chapter 20. It's the purpose of his gospel. Coupled with that context, it's, it's part of John presenting a case, and he's carefully selected elements of his story to support that case. Coupled with that, I'd like to also remind us that we're in the section of his account where at the beginning of chapter 13, he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And 
um, the Lord Jesus Christ showing him and the, um, showing his disciples and therefore us the full extent of his love began in the upper room and continues through his passion and onwards. There's a, before we read the passage, there's a couple of standout elements which I'd like us to look out for, as well as our, our text, uh, they bound him. A couple of standout points um, is that John is portraying um, the beginning of the darkest episode in Jesus' life. And the thing that's very striking is that the Lord Jesus had complete knowledge of what was coming his way. I say um, that's a significant point. And I, I would contend that because John mentions it, and we'll read that expression, um, it wasn't necessarily something that had always been the case. So maybe that's a, a sensitive area, you know, how much of what was coming did the Lord Jesus learn through his days on earth? But the reality here is because we are told it directly that he had knowledge of what was coming his way. And despite that, this is a standout point, he knew what was coming, but he was totally committed to it. And interesting point is he was in control. Others may have thought they were in control. Judas may have thought they were in control. The Lord of glory, standing bound by men, was in control. Let's never lose sight of that. Second point, uh, and this is new to me, but I think it's a, it's a really rich point for us to meditate on, that um, this was something the Lord Jesus needed to do alone. And maybe we wag our finger sometimes or look down our noses at the disciples who abandoned him. And it was the Lord's desire that they would not be with him. And we'll see that in this section. Maybe it was a compassionate act on his part to keep them away from what he would have to go through. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe um, it's just an emphasis that the Lord Jesus is the only one that could bring about what needed to be bring needed to be brought about in God's plan. And no one else could possibly be involved. Let's read the passage, John 18, 1 to 14. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Jesus came, Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. 
I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of these you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. I want us to try and not lose the arresting spectacle of the Lord of glory standing alone and bound. But to get to that point, we need to unpick what happened between them leaving the upper room and getting to that point. Um, and there's some little nuggets on the way which I'd love to share with you for our encouragement and our consideration. So when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. That's verse one. You know, the last time we met Judas was back in chapter 13, shortly after Jesus had washed the disciples' feet, including Judas. And verse 30 says, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. So we have the Lord Jesus and his disciples leaving the warmth and the intimacy and the specialness of that unique Passover feast that the Lord so eagerly desired to eat with them. And they left that place and stepped out into the darkness and they crossed the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley, it's got interesting history. Um, there's loads of stuff on it if you if you Google it, and I didn't really have the time to kind of filter it all through, but just some simple things. The, the, the word Kidron, it means duskiness or darkness. And apparently it was the place where the ashes from the city of Jerusalem were ditched. It was a place where they, the rubbish ended up. And it was also an official burial ground, but it seemed like an official burial ground for, for nobodies, for people who had no family or couldn't afford to proper burial. It was a dark and dingy place. The kind of place that was never anyone's destination. And when you read through the references of it, it's always and they cross the Kidron Valley or they pass through the Kidron Valley. There's a little message in there for us, I think, that whenever we feel stuck in a, in a place of duskiness and, and darkness and there's kind of heaps of ashes around and it's, it's pretty rubbish. You know, we ought to take heart because we need to consider this as a, an essential part of our journey, but it's not the destination. We need to move on from those places. There's a lovely um, verse in Isaiah 45, familiar verse I'm sure to, to all of us taking it out of its context but I think it's it's a legitimate thing to do and the Lord says I will give you the treasures of darkness riches stored in secret places 
so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. Just a, a little nugget a detail that um, John records that they um, left the upper room and crossed the Kidron Valley, a dark place. A little exercise for us to do if we get the opportunity is check out 2 Samuel 15 and 16, the two chapters, because for me, it's a really interesting contrast. It's about King David fleeing from his treacherous son, Absalom, and he crosses the Kidron Valley with his whole family, hundreds of people probably, and those that supported him. And he ends up praying on the Mount of Olives. I just find it a fascinating meditation to draw, it's not really a, a comparison, it's a contrast. The situations are so different, but the place is the same. And there's some precious things maybe there. Verse two in our unpicking of um, John 18. Now Judas who betrayed him knew the place because Jesus, Jesus had often met with his disciples there. Jesus had, and his disciples had gone across the Kidron Valley and now they were on the Mount of Olives, which is the opposite side from where the city was. Interestingly, the King James Version says, Jesus oft times resorted thither. <laughs> There's some good old English. Jesus oft times resorted thither. My attention was grabbed by the word resorted. Judas knew the place where Jesus was going because it was a place that with his disciples he resorted to. Not so much a last resort, but I would say a more of a favorite default place where the Lord Jesus just delighted to go. Not always with his disciples, because as many references were, we see him at the, in, on the Mount of Olives on his own in the night. And just a, a little nugget, where is my favorite default place? And who do I meet there? The Lord and his disciples, it was the Mount of Olives, and it's where they went and Judas knew about it, and they had precious times together there. Just a little thing for us to think about. Verse three. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. You may recall, we've been here before. If you go back to chapter seven, verse 32, and I won't read the whole thing, I just kind of pull out certain elements of that passage. It says, then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple gods to arrest him. The people were divided because of him. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple gods went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the gods declared. And each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, another reference to him going to his favorite place. You know, the, the attempt to arrest the Lord Jesus the first time round failed. Um, or maybe that wasn't the first time, but the, the time that's recorded in John 7, it failed. And you know, it leaves us with the question, this time they're more serious. Uh, this time they meant business and they'd managed to get an insider to come on to their side, led by Judas. It says, what a what a indictment about Judas, the one who was leading the, um, the enemy, those who would seek to arrest and execute Jesus. 
supposedly someone from the inside with insider knowledge. Um, they didn't need Judas to help them find where Jesus was. Jesus went knowing where the rendezvous would be. He's leading a detachment of soldiers, um, not just palace guards, but a detachment of soldiers this time with officials, it says, from the chief priests and the Pharisees, presumably men with legal authority, just in case uh, anyone would challenge why they were arresting him. I know they had lanterns and torches and weapons. All they needed to see through the gloom of the Kidron Valley, see through the gloom of the unlit garden um, on the Mount of Olives and all the weapons they need needed if anyone dared to challenge them or even if Jesus himself challenged them. So very well prepared this time. And how did they fur? Go to verse four. Jesus went forth. That's a, another King James Version statement. Um, you just get the impression that there's, a, there's proactivity going on, on on Jesus' part. He's in control. So they show up in the garden and he steps out to engage with them. You know, this is a contrast with John 8. Um, John 8 and 59. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus himself slipped away from the temple grounds. The difference was his hour then had not yet come. The divine timetable was not ready for him to be arrested. And the time had now come. That was his opening statement in his prayer in John 17. Father, the time has now come. There is a divine timetable going on here. And Judas may have thought he was in control. The palace guards and the Roman soldiers and the chief priests and the Pharisees may have thought they were in control. But this is the outworking of a divine plan with a divine timetable and was divinely controlled. Now it's a, a wonderful picture of the divine service of the chosen servant, sensitive to God's timing, ready. This is uh, post the Gethsemane prayer, which John chooses not to record. So all of that has happened and we see the Lord Jesus in control, stepping forward with confidence. And he says, who is it you want? As for Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, he said. Key point here is he didn't say I am he. Uh, there's no he in the original. He said, I am. Who do you want? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And it's yet another in their face claim to his divinity. And all they could do was draw back and fall to the ground. Verse six. You know, faced with the emphatic and irrefutable word of the Lord Jesus Christ, declaring without any ambiguity his divine identity, their weapons didn't even get deployed. They drew back and fell to the ground, presumably lanterns and torches and weapons clattering about them. It reminds me of um, Saul on the road to Damascus. When confronted with the Savior, he couldn't help but fall to the ground. John in a later experience, the Apostle John in a later experience at the beginning of Revelation, when I saw him, that's the Lord Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. You know, these reactions are spontaneous. It's not 
Could the men help falling back, falling down to the ground? No, they couldn't. It was a, an inevitable consequence of an encounter with deity. The challenge to my heart is, when has my appreciation of the presence of God resulted in, resulted in such a reaction? You know, I, we discussed this in training for service at length, the, the role of the Holy Spirit in convicting us of the, amongst other things, the identity of, of who Jesus is. And I think it's the work of the Holy Spirit in my life today that causes me to appreciate from God's word the reality of who he is and his greatness. And when that happens, I'm dumbfounded and just left falling to the ground. It also took me to Moses and the burning bush and to Joshua meeting the commander of the Lord's army. They had their own direct encounters with divinity. And in order to stay standing, they had to remove their shoes. Take, up, take the shoes off your feet because where you're standing is holy ground. God makes a provision for us to stand in his presence, but not something we can do standing on our own feet, as it were. We stand on holy ground um, because we have been made holy. And that's a, a topic for another day and another ministry, but you can trace that through. Verse five carries a, a real tragic statement. Uh, in the NIV, I don't know why, but it's in parentheses, it's in brackets. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. That's them being uh, the detachment of soldiers that he'd been leading. You know, I guess it, it depends how you read it, but did they all draw back and fall to the ground, leaving Judas as the only man standing? You have to study it and read it in different ways, but my sense is that is what happened. And it's as though John wants to emphasize to his audience as he brings these witnesses to the stand that there can be no doubt as to where Judas' loyalty lay. He identified himself with the enemy. And it's as though Judas had rejected the Lord Jesus and has now somehow become desensitized and unaffected by the power of the presence of God. It's a tragedy. You know, it's such a, a contrast to Peter's reaction in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. However misguided Peter's zeal was, there was no question as to where his loyalty lay. He would make his stand, whatever, it, whatever the consequences. What about me? It's another challenge for us to take away. When under pressure, um, where do we stand? Maybe we stand in an uneasy place where observers are left guessing you know, where our loyalties lie. Not the case for Judas, and certainly not the case for Peter. Back to verse 7, again he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, I told you I am. Again, no he, Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. And here's an interesting verse. Let this happen so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled I have not lost one of those you gave me. That was in his prayer. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? There's such a sense here that God's will will be done, Peter. And uh, the only way is his way. And I'm the only one who can do it. It's as though the Lord Jesus is saying to Peter, 
no, back off, my friend. Your time will come, but um, you really cannot be involved in what comes next. And then a point I made earlier about us wagging the finger at the other disciples, apparent lack of courage, they disappeared. But this is what the Lord had prayed about. He didn't want them to in any way become vulnerable. And his instruction to the gods was, take me and, and let them go. It's, it's not for them. You know, was it an act of compassion uh, on his disciples? Was it an act of wanting him wanting them to be kept from what was happening next, given he knew what would happen next? You know, he was full of compassion and a lover of mercy and demonstrated it perhaps in this instruction about his disciples, but certainly in the healing of Malchus. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested him. They bound him. And that's really where our part of the story ends. It's a cliffhanger, isn't it? We have the Lord of glory standing apparently abandoned by his disciples, but that's what he wanted. And he's standing amongst, amongst the soldiers and he's bound. And it's monumental because never before has the God of heaven, his father, or Jesus himself allowed men to have their way, their way with him in terms of what they would be taking him through in the trial and, of course, ultimately the crucifixion. It just speaks of the um, divine timing and the divine control over the plan for our salvation. And let's never lose sight of the fact that the Lord Jesus was in control, that God was in control of the whole thing. And, you know, many things happen at, at Calvary. We'll enjoy anticipating those things and immersing ourselves in, in the horrors and in the beauty of it. Part of it was the God of heaven allowing his beloved son to be subjected to the worst that man could do to him, sinful man could do for him. Jesus knowing, just a concluding statement, Jesus, verse 4, Jesus knowing all that was going to happen went out. Thank you.